1: right my name is rich schmidt i'm here with julia Bandits. february 23rd 2021 i should say jules bandy <laughs> february 23rd 2021 we're at the linfield university library uh thank you so much for joining us today we appreciate this uh first question to get you started why wine
2: why wine when i was in culinary school uh, when i was 19 we were offered our first kind of introduction to wine in the form of wine classes and also a spirits class, um, and at that point, I really hadn't explored the idea that wine was something that people did for a living. You know, I was just um, a kid, and for me, like the wine class was like we can drink and get away with it. We're <laughs> underage, um, so that was really the first introduction to wine professionally. You know, so I was, I was pretty young. You know, being in a wine class at nineteen there was stuff that was just like nothing was sticking Mm -hmm. Um, but I was in culinary school and and food was certainly something that I had a really um, good grasp on at that time and so after that you know brief introduction um, spirits food and wine and pairing and you know dining as an experience just became something that I knew was going to be part of my life and after you know a lot of time cooking and working late hours and not making a lot of money, um, I made the transition into the front of the house. Mm-hmm. But I didn't you know, go straight into serving like a lot of folks do. I was lucky enough to kind of stumble into a position that allowed me to really just jump right into restaurant management. Mm-hmm. Worked at a really small restaurant and took over the wine program pretty immediately. And it just, it just took off from there. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to back up a second and talk yeah. about food, since food clearly is important to you. So tell me about the yes. decision to go into culinary school.
2: Yeah, so I grew up in South Jersey, on the Jersey Shore. Um, Definitely not like the portrayal on TV. (laughs) (laughs) It was a really idyllic life, to be totally honest. You know, not a city girl. We had a little plot of land about 10 minutes offshore. Um, You know, growing up, we had horses, ducks, chickens, goats, you know, the whole thing. Uh, Beautiful gardens, my mom was a big gardener and my dad, um, and you know, like a lot of kids, you know, food was just part of our life. You know, family dinners. My grandparents were Italian immigrants, so we always had, you know, manicotti at the table, pizzas, Like, I have some very specific food memories. Like, there's something I still can't figure out where it's from. Like, no one in my family can really trace it back except for my, to my grandma Emma, but we call it Easter bread, but it's basically a savory tart dough. Mm sort of chilled with seasoned ricotta cheese inside, and it's like this cheese bread, like that to me is, you know, Catholic Easter sort of food. Um, And my uncle also had a seafood company, and so seafood was huge as a kid. You know, I knew if there was a paper bag on the table when I got home from school that those were soft-shell crabs, and that was a huge thing. So we were able to eat this really, you know, decadent food, but um, but we were certainly not a family of means, and so when, you know, the once a year we went out to a restaurant, and I'd be like, oh, I'll have lobster and soft-shell crabs, and my parents were like, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, Not in that column. Yeah, we don't order from that column, because um, I just didn't, you know, I just had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to school in Vermont, and I went to the University of Vermont, actually, um, and I wanted to go there. and snowboard and, you know, be in the mountains and hike. And I was really interested in being far enough away that I felt like I was, uh, you know, away from home. But um, I was putting myself through school and I went to public high school. And so the idea of paying for an education hadn't quite settled in yet. And then, you know, that first year you start to get invoices and statements from your loan providers. And, you know, I just really, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't have a clear path. and. I was taking a lot of different types of classes, and I really enjoyed school. I'm, I feel like one of those people that could certainly be a student forever. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Mm-hmm. But the idea of you know, accruing all of the debt caused me a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress and, um, <clears throat> to be totally honest, <laughs> I used to, I'm very into um, apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. And I remember at one point I was like, man, you know, if the world ended, like, what would I be able to offer a society that was rebuilding? I'm totally, no, I'm serious. This is like my 18 year old brain. And I was like, nothing really, I suppose. And I was like, I just really wanted to learn how to do something with my hands. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to feel like I was doing something instead of sort of sitting still and reading, which um, is obviously a huge passion of mine. And, um, not to knock sitting around and reading all day, but, you know, I I just needed more. And a couple of my friends were like, well, you know, what do we spend our time doing? Like, we go in the woods, we find mushrooms, we cook, we, you know, all we want to do is gather and share meals. And and then another friend was like, you know, there's a culinary school here. So I I just, you know, on a whim, just decided like that was what I was gonna do um, for now. Mm -hmm. You know, I certainly, was one of those uh, folks I suppose, I was never married to like, this is what I'll do and here's my path. Mm-hmm. It was like, this was okay for now. Mm-hmm. Turned out it was a really incredible experience. I met so many wonderful people, was able to travel, um, and you know, had this world open to me that I just didn't really know existed mm-hmm. before.
1: Um, yeah. You mentioned that kind of the world opening up for you a little bit. Were there mm-hmm. particular moments you remember or particular um, memories you have of just like kind of seeing something you'd never seen before or realizing something something existed that you hadn't ever realized before?
2: Um there were so many of them. You know, there probably wasn't one giant one, but you know, just special moments of being you know, I love I loved being a line cook. I loved the pressure of cooking, you know, under fire. And that first sort of rush I got, my very first time I worked a lunch service in a real restaurant, you know, I'll never forget that. It was like, I just like slipped right into it. Like it really worked for me. Um, The, you know, both the the elegance of the dance, you know, in your tiny space, all these people having to work together. um, It was just so much fun and I was like, wow, this could be work. Mm -hmm. This is so cool, this is so fun. Um, You know, tasting real caviar for the first time I remember, I think I was 20 at this point, and my culinary school actually had a sister relationship with um, another school in the British Virgin Islands. So I opted to go there for a year, obviously. <laughs> it was like Vermont winter, Caribbean winter. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's head there. Um, so you know, I spent almost a year down there, and because of you know, we were in the BVI, so there were no embargoes with Iran at the time, so we actually got real caviar like true Iranian sturgeon, you know, caviar. And um, we had loads of it. We, got, we were a tiny class, so there were like six of us. And we had, you know, I don't know, probably six ounce tins of caviar, which is a lot of caviar. Um, and we were, you know, doing this caviar tasting and afterwards we basically just opened champagne and just continued to like <laughs> gorge ourselves on this. Um, and, you know, it was one of those moments where you're like, wow, like I get it now, mm-hmm. I get this now. Like why people seek these specialty things or why it you know brings so much pleasure. And food is so interesting, right? Because it's ephemeral, It's it doesn't stay with you. Just like wine, you know, I love wine and I um, invest in wine personally, and you know, mainly in European wine at this point, because there's so much here that I can get readily, uh, you know, in domestic wines, but and it's, it's wild, it's, my partner is not in wine, and he's always like, and so like you spend all this money and you have all this, this stuff, but then it, you pop a cork and it's gone. It's just like you know, the food, you know, that's definitely the bulk of my income is spent on food and wine, <laughs> um, and anything that sort of even indirectly relates to those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like this wild thing about collecting something like wine, mm-hmm. or you know, buying these like, we did ship in, we had a party two summers ago. Um, and we shipped in a bunch of soft shell crabs because I just like, gotta have the soft shell crabs, and we don't have them out here, and it's such a specific season, you know. And I think I spent like five hundred dollars, like overnight shipping, like four cases of soft sh- shell crabs to this party. And it, you know, it's in hindsight, it's wow, that was a really maybe a waste of money. Um, but <laughs> but is it, you know? <laughs> for like, I'll remember that incredible party for a long time, mm-hmm. and just the pleasure of those you know, seeking out those those specific foods that just draw you back into those places. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think a lot a lot of those kinds of memories, not necessarily one, but I think it's just the bonds I think you form with people when you work in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Obviously there's a lot that's come to light about the culture of restaurants, which is, uh, you know, so so true and so real and so raw, but, there is another side of that coin where you you become so bonded with people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much trust. You know, you have to work together. Like there is no working alone in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, one person slips, like the whole team feels it. You know, and
3: mm-hmm.
2: growing up, I was a big like team sports kid. So I think that also really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. You know, working in restaurants for a long time.
1: So tell me about tell me about that that kind of you mentioned your you remember your your first time as a language you remember your first time in a restaurant mm-hmm. tell me about that kind of your kind of journey through the, 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 the back of the house in, in food and where, where did you start and and where did you kind of work work through your career
2: Yeah, it you know it didn't uh, last as long as I initially thought it would. Um, being in the kitchen, I loved being in the kitchen. Um, I loved you know peeling a case of potatoes as much as I loved working a station that was far more glamorous like you know the fish station or. You know, something that required um, all hands, all decorate. Proteins was always like, are you gonna get to grill? Are you gonna be on saute? Um, You know, but I also love Garmanger. Like, I loved working with lettuces and salads. I was really fortunate. The restaurants that I actually ended up working in, whether it was like as an intern or after school, were small family-run restaurants that were very tapped into the uh, Mm farm-to-table scene. So one of the first chefs that I connected with when I was living in the Caribbean was a graduate of Necky where I went to school and he was based in Seattle. So his name was Jonathan Sundstrom and he opened a restaurant, I wanna say in 2003, called Lark, and that was the first restaurant that he opened at the time. So I ended up working with him and his menu was so, to me, so, so beautiful. It was really, so this would have been like 2005, 2006, I'm gonna say I ended up there early 2006 And it was really on the cusp of like this small plate, farm to table stuff, things that are really commonplace for us now, Mm -hmm. but it was so different. He listed the farms on the menu. That wasn't wasn't happening, Mm -hmm. you know. At this point, it was still, chefs were getting famous in hotel restaurants. Mm -hmm. Like there weren't these like small little hole in the wall and this was a beautiful little uh, restaurant off the beaten path and a place in Seattle now that is beautiful and like well traveled, but it wasn't then, it was definitely on like the outskirts of town. And John and his partner J M um, and their business partner Kelly, um, they just built this such a special place. It was um, the menus were designed like in this really tall skinny format, and it was broken down by um, grains and vegetables and proteins. So these weren't comprised or composed plates—a mm-hmm. meat, a potato, you know, a vegetable—and that was really avant-garde at the time. And it was so rustic, but the ingredients were unbelievable. Like I still remember. In fact, I just turned 36 last week and I cooked myself a birthday dinner, um, as I do, and <laughs> the food I made there was like the food I used to have at Lark. So Bluebird Grains is a farm up in Winthrop, Washington, and John introduced me to them and their farro and their uh, heritage grains, flours, are some of the best. Um, so I ordered online and had some delivered last week. And basically just made um, farro in like a risotto style. Mm-hmm. So, with uh, black trumpet mushrooms, little creme fraiche, little Parmesan, like, oh my gosh, like that's my food. And I think that I just fell in love with it, you know, from, from someone like John, who was so tapped into the local farms, working with, you know, um, oyster farmers and small, you know, game farms, mm-hmm. um, just to particularly have these special things, but that were are all, you know, in line with, his values in terms of environmentalism and mm-hmm. sustainability. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> we were talking about, first, oh, first restaurants, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the start, and um, and I really, when I moved on to s- different restaurants subsequently, they were all kind of along that same line. Mm-hmm. Smaller, family-run places, um, and then when I, um, or I guess previously to that, I was in San Francisco, also working for another great little spot that, um, Is no longer open, and that place was wonderful. So Justine Miner was the chef owner. Uh, It was called RNM up in the Lower Haight, which is also such a cool place. And I was, you know, I was still, I think I was 19 when I lived there, you know, living in San Francisco and like in an, I think it was kind of an illegal office law situation. Um, (laughs) And, you know, just working in the city, living with my friends, and, um, you know, I needed two jobs to even afford like the lifestyle that we, I mean this is not a lifestyle, mm-hmm, right, this is mm-hmm. just you're getting up and you're going to work, but wow, like being in San Francisco that young and just um, working like that, it's it's weird, like I don't know really how to explain it other than to call it like a work ethic. My dad's the same way, he, my, and my, I would say my whole family, my brother, like I begged to have a job, like all I knew, I wanted to do was work, which sounds kind of sad, you know, thinking about like as a little kid. But it's never been an issue for any of us, like mm-hmm. working too little <laughs> or not having the drive to like produce and. Um, and I I don't know where where it came from, but that's what it felt like in San Francisco. It just felt like I was living a life. Mm-hmm. Like one of uh, my favorite songs is like an old Van Morrison song about washing windows mm-hmm. and like that song connected with me so much I'm like yes like just sweeping the kitchen in the mornings like scrubbing the stove like not something that's really glamorous and beautiful but there's just something that it really fed me like mm-hmm. I knew that that type of work while it didn't stimulate me necessarily mentally the way I needed to find other things to do that um, but there is something just honest about it mm-hmm. satisfying mm-hmm. just knowing that yeah, I might have spent three hours of my day peeling baby carrots, but I did it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and then after San Francisco, so I—that's when I hit kind of hit the Caribbean and then Seattle, and that's when I was really starting to, you know, now approaching my early twenties, mid twenties, um, and starting to feel, you know, people talk about burnout, burnout a little bit, I suppose. You know, I think you'd really have to define what that means for you. Um, I was tired of living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. That was my burnout.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I loved the work and I didn't mind the hours, though I certainly started to feel like I was missing out on a friend group. You know, I worked every night, all the weekends, so I couldn't connect with you if you didn't work in our industry. Mm-hmm. And that's very limiting. And I lived so far away from my family that I missed, you know, I missed weddings, I missed funerals, I missed birthdays. And my whole family was still back in New Jersey at that time and um, it just, it started to get old. And I thought, wow, like in 20 years, am I going to remember that shift I worked or what I missed? And that's, that was really the driver for why I left the kitchen. Um, and I just knew I needed to figure out a way to do something I loved, but also financially have it make sense for me. So I ended up at another small little family-run restaurant, and this time in the front of the house. And they, were, they had applied, or they posted a job description that was just like a host, basically. And at this point, I was like, sure. You know, it's not glamorous, I'll give it a shot. Well, it ended up being a huge um, move in a direction that I had no idea I was headed. The owner of this restaurant, it was called La Medusa, still there in Seattle, in South Seattle. It is a Sicilian restaurant in focus. Um, So Southern Italian food which you know beautiful. God, the food of Sicily is just so magical. And the owner and chef was a woman. Her name is Julie Andres and I totally credit her with just opening my world to what owning a small business could be. She's the one who taught me how to you know arrange a bouquet of flowers and to you know make a restaurant feel like a home. Um, she put so much thought and love and care into this space, and then very quickly we realized we worked incredibly well together, and she could impose you know tr- entrust me with a lot more than just you know small things and so very quickly it was like, okay, like we could do something really cool with the wine program." Mm-hmm. So I started pursuing some certifications at that time, and that was oh gosh, 2009 was like the first certification I ever I ever sought um, which was super fun, because I remembered being in wine class, you know, when I was 19. <laughs> and I was like, oh wow, but I have so much more understanding of what's going on now. Um, and Julie had to, I would probably say a couple years after I started working there, she really had to step away for some personal reasons and basically gave me the keys. So I worked with our accountant and learned how to process payroll and, you know, I ran all of the systems that were in the restaurant, you know, took our wine program from you know 10 12 wines to 80 wines at one point increased our beverage costs learned about food costing and wine costing and like putting together a whole program and I really thought at one point that I was going to purchase the restaurant from her and then you know several life things took it a different direction but um, I was there for almost six years and just learned I mean more than I ever thought I would from her mm-hmm. um, she is a pretty incredible woman
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and that's when I really was like, okay, left that and thought, I don't think I'm ready to kind of settle down, right, and and have this be my own. Because one of the things I learned about margins and restaurants during that time is um, <laughs> I was trying to find a way to make more money, you remember, um, and that was like a small restaurant. Okay, maybe that's not the way
3: I want to go.
2: So again was just like, okay, what's the next step? And um, I happened to have met a guy in one of my wine classes and he was kind of pushing for like working harvest and like, let's just go jump into the wine business. And he and I started dating, eventually we got married um, and have now subsequently divorced. But he and I really dove into the world of wine from the cellar first. He stayed in the cellar and is a winemaker and uh, doing great things. Um, But after working uh, harvest, you know, I got more onto the sales side.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, that, and that really tied together everything I had been doing in, in restaurant management, whether it was wine education classes, you know, or um, management, you know, leadership, those sort of things really tapped into a skill set that I didn't necessarily, I will say consciously know that I had already been honing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that kind of really steered me into to what I'm doing today.
1: Mm-hmm. Is an interesting path
2: yeah very a lot of twists and turns <laughs> you know but it, you know always always on the food and wine you mm-hmm. know in some way
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and even though now today like what I'm doing doesn't isn't necessarily as you know directly tied to those things I once loved um, there's still so much about what I do mm-hmm. that has has those elements mm-hmm. at play.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We'll come back to kind of come back to the current thing mm-hmm. here in a second, but I'm curious. You mentioned wine education, certification, so, so, some type mm-hmm. uh, training there. Tell me about that process for you. You mentioned kind of how much you had learned in the in the interim since your wine classes. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the the process of of formal wine education and of learning to do something like building a wine program the way you did.
2: Yeah, the wine certifications that I started with were with the International Sommeliers Guild, ISG for short. Um, and I did their kind of level 1, 2, which were pretty you know, subsequent to like WSET 1 and 2, I would say. Maybe even a little beyond WSET 1 and 2. Um, and I loved it. I think from all of the time I spent cooking, tasting wine was, came very easy to me. Um, in fact, my, my ex-husband at the time would always... Um, you know, shake his head, he's like, I listen to your tasting notes, and I have no idea where you, like, he's like, I don't even know, what is this? What are you, how are you getting that information? And it was, that part came really naturally to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Being able to smell and taste something in a glass and put it down on paper Mm -hmm. or express it verbally, that was no problem. And so that was fun. Where I saw some other people kind of struggling to build that skill, I felt relief in that um, that wasn't a skill I had to build. I mean, of course you have to build it. Um, you not by no means like a super blind taste or anything, but um, but it was like, oh, okay, you know, it's sort of like you pick up a golf club and you're like, wow, well, I guess I'm kind of a natural, right? <laughs> Sometimes you just are. So that made it even more fun for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, I became more inquisitive and because I was working in Italian wine almost explicitly, um, and Italian wine, if you've ever studied wine, is <laughs> so confusing and it was almost better that I started there Mm -hmm. because I had, you know, I will certainly not use the word master, but I had I had navigated the world of Italian wine for so many years that when we, you know, it came into class and everyone was like crossing their eyes at it. I was like, I know, (laughs) you know, I can understand this. And then it really laid the foundation for, you know, learning France, learning Spain, learning Portugal, Mm -hmm. the new world, right? Um, So it's like I learned the hardest part first, which set me up in fact for success. Um, and I really liked wine education, I liked the format of the classes, um, I did really well. I think the the most challenging part for me is, you know, right now I'm in the WSET Diploma Program, which should have been completed approximately two years ago. And then COVID and various things have now like pushed me out. Um, but The hardest thing about going back to school now, of course, is working full time <laughs> and not having. The sort of flexibility, you know, in the restaurant. The work in the restaurant was, you know, I won't call it easy is not the right word, but it was natural. Like, there wasn't a lot of challenge in the day-to-day. Mm. You know, if you could, you know, project manage, multitask, clearly communicate, you know, and you were good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, it came so naturally to me. Like, it was easy working the floor, and making cocktails and selling wine. And then, oh, somebody needs to jump in and like play dessert. Like, that was fun for me. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do now at Soder, also very fun, but really different. Mm-hmm. And it certainly doesn't allow the sort of free time that I, I once had before. Um, building out the wine list was so much fun. I credit a lot of my success and education to actually the reps that I worked with at the various distributors that I bought wine from. You know, some of these folks were so generous with their time. Mm-hmm so generous with their information and knowledge that they passed along to me. And I was so new, I was so young, not only like actually young, I was green. And um, you know, there would be these like big wine tastings, like a portfolio tasting or something. And I would be so nervous to go alone to these things. And so, you know, sometimes I would just have to like, seek out encouragement or, or really just like suck it up and just go do it. and. Um, we always talk about, of course, especially now in the forefront of uh, sort of trying to de snobbify wine, mm-hmm. but it f- was so intimidating for me. You know, when I went to those big tastings, nobody was like, come taste our wine. You know, you were fighting to the front, a lot of people who knew a lot more than you, and it was really hard not to feel sort of defeated at those moments. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, the folks I worked with, some various distributors, Cava I worked with for years, Andy Schollard was so good to me and um, really helped me to kind of just build confidence and, and opened that door for me to like, mm-hmm. it's not as scary as you think it is. And then I had the pleasure of doing a buying trip in Sicily, which was amazing. And so, you know, Julie sent me there for a couple of weeks and got to tour like the whole island and visit various producers who were Unbelievably warm and welcoming. Um, worked with Lily Lucchese, um, Le- the Leonardo Locascio selections, and we went to the Regali Ali estate, and um, that's the de Marita family of wines. And they have, they're a very large producer. Mm-hmm. They have properties spread out on the island, but you know those sorts of experiences were invaluable. And I fell in love with Sicily for so many reasons. I mean, the, cu- the cuisine there is such a mashup, you know, of what you may think Southern Italian food to be. Because they're so close to Northern Africa, um, you know, that influence has come up so much, you know, in the form of like their couscous, you know, so many spices and saffron and cinnamon and things that you wouldn't necessarily equate with Italian food. Um, but it's also really simple, lots of oily fish, which I love, you know, anchovies, sardines, like that sort of thing. And really simple preparations, right? It may just be grilled with you know, a beautiful piece of Meyer lemon or citrus. All of those things are really prevalent. Almonds, mm-hmm. sugar, citrus, like pistachio, uh, those sorts of flavors. And the wines, you know, were sort of, were magical. Sicily makes, obviously, some of the world's largest amount of bulk wine that can be produced because their climate is so advantageous and they can grow so much, <laughs> they do. But there are some pockets, you know, like in, on Mount Etna, which is becoming more and more famous mm-hmm. and well-known that, you know, these are like high altitude, like cool climate wines almost. And you're, you're like, we're in the middle of the Mediterranean on an island, a very hot island. Um, but there are these, you know, these little microclimates, mm-hmm. these pockets, these really special places. Um, down in the Chiriswolo area as well, you know, where avla and Frappato grow, such a gorgeous region. And Frappato is a grape I fell in love with right away, which has a lot of similarities of Pinot Noir, actually. And it's not really found outside of that region. To my knowledge, I, have, I really haven't seen it anywhere else, but you know, these sort of light, lively, lithe, perfumey, kind of ethereal reds serve a little chilled, lower tannin. Um, those wines really spoke to me, especially from a culinary perspective. You know, I, I never got into big reds, California wines, you know, that sort of style. Because when I was eating food with it, and I tended to lean more pescatarian, vegetarian, just by virtue of Mm -hmm. my personal tastes, those wines just never, um, were enough in harmony with the food. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's also why I I just leaned a little more European in my tastes, um, and probably why I love Pinot Noir so much, and Oregon Pinot Noir really fits that bill for me.
1: Mm -hmm. So when it comes to when it comes to making a wine list for a place like that, when you have a when you have a, comp- a complicated wine region that you're mm-hmm. trying to curate, what were sort of the key components of of creating that list, and what were you trying to get across to customers there, or any other any other kind of wine list you've created? Mm-hmm.
2: It, it, particularly at, at Medusa, um, I built the list. I wanted it to be predominantly Sicilian, mm-hmm. which no one was really doing. You know, there were only so many Sicilian wines coming in, and um, Another thing that I really leaned toward were were at the time natural wines. That it's a really loaded term, and it means a lot different things to me now than it did then. Mm-hmm. Um, it really wasn't a term that we even used natural wines, but because I was so interested in agriculture and sustainability as it related to the f- business of food, it was obviously natural that I would be seeking out producers mm-hmm. that were farming a certain way. I wasn't as much concerned or. S- even not concerns the right word, but interested in necessarily winemaking techniques that would qualify as natural. But the farming was really important to me. Um, studies were just coming out about glyphosate and glyphosate use that were pushing, you know, front page news finally. Um, and there were in Italy, you know, in this region in particular, it's a lot easier to grow organic grapes because of the climate. You know, they have low disease pressure, low mold mildew pressure mm-hmm. because it's warm and sunny and dry. And, and the fact of the matter is, it's just easier to farm naturally in those regions. Um, so there were a lot of options. Um, what I aimed to do with the list was, besides from being predominantly Sicilian and looking for things that, that leaned more naturally, mm-hmm. um, I always was after the things that were not so mainstream. And the reason that worked for me is that I worked every night. There was never a night where you couldn't find me to ask me a question about the wine list. I really wanted people to use me in that way. So I didn't, the wine list wasn't presented necessarily in a way that, um, you know, it went from like light body to full body, so tried to kind of make it um, make sense in that way on the list for people. So if somebody didn't uh, necessarily want to engage about a wine selection, I could at least offer them some guidance. And we always had something represented from local wines as well. Because we we're in, you know, Washington wine regions, and we we're so close to here in the Wamette Valley, mm-hmm. so there o- always were a couple of options for people that were like, "I just want my cab blend." I was like, "I got you," because <laughs> ultimately, you know, you got to make some money. Um, but I really wanted people to to feel comfortable and build a relationship with me. And I had such an amazing group of regulars there that, after building trust with them and offering suggestions, you know, we were we were so generous. It was always one of my things. I was like, "If you don't like it," Don't drink it. Like I'm not gonna charge you for it. Like we'll we'll taste it. We'll drink it. You know, I think Julie was generous to a fault in that way, where you know we, it was always our option to like, or always our prerogative to make sure they were happy with mm-hmm. what they had, mm-hmm. and if that meant like opening some bottles for them, like we were s- so willing to do that. Um, yeah.
1: So at this point in the story, you you have not, you've you've been around Oregon, but you haven't really gotten into Oregon yet. So tell me, so was the harvest job what brought you to Oregon the first time? Okay, so tell me about about why you chose that particular place and about the harvest experience before you sort of headed into the sales side.
2: Yeah, so I worked harvest for the first time uh, in the vintage of 2012. And I had been here the year prior kind of helping with harvest at the same winery. Um, And this was at Shea. And the winemaker then was Drew Voigt. And I got connected with Drew through uh, my then partner who worked for him as well. And Drew is just, I mean, Drew's so magnetic. He's such a big personality. He's so much fun. And he is so damn smart. And he I mean, any question I pitched at Drew, he was never like, ugh, another intern question, you know. He wouldn't just answer it. And this is this is where I get caught up actually in school, is like my problem with studying about wine currently is that I can't just read like the thing I'm supposed to know. I need to, I need to know like why that came to be. And Drew will offer that to you, you know, if I'm like, well why, tell me about, you know, um, what were we talking about one day? Tell me about reduction, you know, and, and we basically got down to like the basic molecules, right? That's how far <laughs> we took it. Um, and that's absolutely how I like to learn, which is not always conducive to finishing things in a timely fashion. Um, But that's how my brain works, like I can't start up here. Like I have to know where it all came from. Mm -hmm. And Drew was just such a wonderful mentor in that way. He was a colleague, he was a friend, you know, he was an incredible boss, and he made gorgeous wines. And so that was an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But when Drew, so working with Drew a little bit in 2011, and then a little bit in 2012, so when I actually came down here to work a full harvest, Drew was actually transitioning out and I was like heartbroken
3: like, I came here
2: to, you know, work with you and while he was going to be around, they had hired a new winemaker at the time um, who was a Kiwi uh, named uh, Blair and I want to say Blair is still there. I think he just left Shay. actually. He ended up being there for quite a long time and Blair was wonderful, you know, very different than Drew in his um, approach, um, very different mannerisms, personality you know, but Blair was like the the steady rock where like the river is just rushing past him. You know, it was not only the calmest, you know, I was expecting harvest to be like 2011, where I remember so clearly we were sorting grapes on Halloween, it was raining, and it felt like, I don't know what the temperature actually was, but it felt like it was like 34 degrees out. It was miserable, <laughs> I mean, but also amazing, right? Because there's a, a little sense of panic and the um, the energy was running so high, which reminded me absolutely of working in the kitchen, and that's why I was drawn to the cellar work, especially at first, because I was like, "Oh, I know this feeling. Mm-hmm. I can move quickly. I can think quickly. I can do two things at once. I can see what's going on the whole time. You know, I don't get lost in a task." So that was really cool. But then 2012 came around, and you know we all remember 2012 vintage. It was like you could be sleeping in your car half the vintage. It was the easiest. It was boring, for lack of, you know, I was wanting the, like, let's work till 1 AM. And it was like, well, I guess we can be done and just come in at 10 tomorrow. And I honestly was, like, bummed. I really wanted that push, that drive, that, like, the same thing I loved about working in kitchens. And you know, it was such a gorgeous harvest. It was the probably the cleanest fruit that we'd ever seen. You know, harvest, no pressure at all. Pick when you want to pick. Sunshine, warmth, but cool night. I mean, it was gorgeous. If you lived here during that time, which I know, I'm sure you did, um, it was perfect. Mm-hmm. And so while that was also an interesting take on, you know, Making wine, it certainly wasn't the craziness that I had experienced the year prior with Harvest. When I was working in Seattle, I also worked and helped out um, at a few urban wineries, mm-hmm. and that was probably my first. Inter- that was definitely my first introduction to like, actually, in production. And Tim Sorensen, the owner and winemaker at Fall Lime Winery, is a dear friend and was so so good to us. And we would go sort grapes with him, in his urban winery in South Seattle. Um, it was it was so fun. We did that I want to say for a couple of years, and he would always you know provide us lunch. And I remember one day Tim was like, "Julia, you know you always bring your own lunch, and I I can get you like a different sandwich if you want." And I was like, oh, "Tim, I don't mean to sound," I was like, "Can I just make lunch for everybody?" <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, "Are you being a sandwich snob?" And I was like, "I am." Yeah, I was like, "I like sandwiches. I just." So after that, he started um, letting me make lunch for everybody, <laughs> and then he was like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you like these beautiful sandwiches." Um, so we had a good thing going. But Tim taught me a lot about cleanliness, most of all in the cellar. Tim, I have never met a more meticulous person. Tim was a professor at Seattle U, economics, and he had this, you know, passion and love for wine, and he'd been doing it for so many years, um, and I never seen a cleaner cellar, and I didn't really know that cellars weren't like that until I left working with Tim, but it's sort of like in a kitchen, you know, I, and, I, and I really enjoyed that. Like, he took so much pride in keeping the space clean, and for wine, of course, you know, it's imperative if you're making wine like Tim did, which he absolutely added nothing at all. You know, we used dry ice, and we used a little sulfur,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I also didn't realize that that necessarily wasn't the norm at the time. Mm-hmm. But if you want to make wine like that, you better believe like you're keeping that place spick and span. I mean, we would, you know, whole hand washing situation, you know, things that <laughs> working later with Drew, for example, who's not necessarily as concerned with, yeah, it just wasn't really his personality type either, keeping things super duper clean. Um, not that his wine suffered at all for it, right? There are so many different ways, but, um, but my brain coming from the kitchen, which was like, everything gets cleaned twice, even if it's clean, um, it fit the bill a lot for mm-hmm. me and, and I think I carry that more with me than I realize. One day, a few years ago, uh, we were just cleaned up like an event at Soder and <clears throat> one of my team members was like, chit-chatting about something and somehow like being like type A came up. And I was like, I don't you guys think I'm type A? And like every head <laughs> turned. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> I did, okay, like everyone was like, yeah,
3: yeah, you
2: like with you know, with that man of just like, everything has to be perfect. <laughs> you have to clean this again. Um, so yeah, I carried over. <laughs>
1: So after after the harvest experiences, you mentioned getting in, kind of getting into the sales side of things. Mm-hmm. Where, where where did you go next at that point? And, and t- take us through kind of the path from from there.
2: Yeah, it was um, this part's a little a little wonky. So I ended up. This was the first time in my life I had made a decision. You know, when I moved here, when I came here for harvest, I did not intend to stay. I had left a restaurant job in Seattle that I loved, and I was really trying to take a step back from management. Um, I'm definitely one of those people that's like, I don't want to be in charge anymore. And then as soon as I'm not in charge, like someone's like, can you just, can you just, you know, and I just kept getting sucked back into management. And um, I was like, I just want to break. I just want to be able to like do what I did, you know, back when I was a line cook. Like I want to punch in the clock and do my job, wash the windows, right? And, and go home and have some more space for myself. And that just wasn't in the cards for me. <laughs> it turns out. So I ended up um, when I came into the valley, and it was it was a very it was one of those moments in your life when you know that it, you're having a moment in life, which is so cool because often you don't realize those are happening until
3: you know mm-hmm. far in the future. Mm-hmm.
2: And I came in here, um, drove around the valley, came to McMinnville, and I was like, I need to be here. Um, it was the same feeling I had the first time I went to Vermont. Like Vermont for me just has this. It had a it had a nostalgia for me before I even lived there. Mm-hmm. I just knew that I was going to have history there and, and memories were going to be made there for me. And when I came here, it was the same feeling. I ended up staying with, um, my, you know, my boyfriend at the time stayed with um, some folks who were just just for for the first time exploring like a harvest intern situation. So we were going to stay with them for you know eight weeks or whatever. Well, we left like two years later. <laughs> And, you know, even from the first month we were with them, uh, this was Jeff Knapp and his wife Liz Knapp. um, And we formed so many beautiful friendships immediately. And I felt like I lived in Seattle. I lived in Seattle for almost six years. And I met two of my closest friends there. And I almost speak to no one else. Like, Seattle never had that for me. It never... um, I never found that feeling there. And mm-hmm. After six years, I ha- again, I have a, two people that I consider to be like friends of that time there, which I think speaks to also just the quality of what was going on mm-hmm. in maybe my life or the circumstances, who knows. Um, but from, I promise you, it was like six weeks I felt like I had met a new group of people that were gonna be in my life forever. And so I just was like, okay, I'm not going back. <laughs> Got a storage unit, um, but it was the first time in my, not even adult life, I had had a f- well, almost full-time job since I was like 14 years old, and I didn't have a job. And I was like, okay, <laughs> it's gonna be okay. You know, um, and not even the financial piece, like the work piece, mm-hmm. like that purpose mm-hmm. piece. And so, I didn't necessarily think that wine sales were something, you know, just even saying like wine sales, like, Ooh. You know, it just didn't, um, it didn't, paying my interest in. And at some point I was like, okay, I think I honestly only didn't have a job for two weeks, but it felt more like <laughs> two years. Um, but I ended up getting a job at a restaurant, which I will remain nameless. So I went back into the restaurant business, and sadly, it was, it was one of the worst experiences I'd ever had. And I, had, I have had very fortunate work experiences, working for people that have been thoughtful and generous and kind. Um, you know, who value kindness above profit, who are effusive and, um, and this was the opposite of that. And I think what that restaurant did for me was allow me to remember mm-hmm. that those places are out there. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's sort of like knowing what, even if I didn't know what I wanted, now I knew what I didn't want, <laughs> right? Like, and so when I was there, There is a lot of sadness, you know, and just sort of trying to think about how we were going to make a life here um, when things were seemed so difficult. Very toxic work environment, um, no leadership, you know, just all the things you can think about. And I remember one day, Courtney Cunningham, who is a a veteran of the wine business, um, now she owns her own consulting company. At this time, she was working at Soder Vineyards, and she had been there and really built the DTC program at Soder back before you know we had, gosh, wine club events. You know, we were seeing like ten people a day. You know, it was so different then. And she was ready to transition out of her role there, and she was looking for someone to replace her. And she had met my my then husband at the time, and she met me and was like, hmm, you know, with the hospitality background, you know, again, management and leadership were all things that were on my resume, and uh, not to mention wine, and you know, I had been in a management position since I was 17. Like, I had that in spades, and because I kinda skipped the traditional schooling, I just had a lot more work experience than other people my age. Um, And she was like, she knew right away. She was like, so she courted me for a little while, and I was so, um, it's sort of like you're in one of those relationships, you know, that you don't, it's so bad, but you can't really see yourself leaving it. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you should come talk to me and like meet these people at Soda And I was like, no, like I, I was at the time, you know, in hindsight, I was like, what was I thinking? You know, I think I just wasn't, I was so focused on like what was going wrong that I wasn't even trying to find a way out at mm-hmm. that point.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But at some point I was like, okay, okay, I'll entertain this. And I ended up meeting with her then, um, National Sales Director Brian Seiper. and we had a probably an hour and a half long conversation that just lit me up. And I was like, "What? Why was I resistant to this?" You know, and we negotiated for you know I don't know a couple of days. I had another interview and then was offered a position as their. I want to my first title there was probably like Hospitality Manager. Mm-hmm. We we never even had you no know, we had no tasting room manager. We technically had someone at the time who's our wine club manager. I'm not even sure if that was her actual title then. Um, and I mean, it was a really small team, so that's where I met Hallie White, who was the then hospitality manager or the wine club manager. Um, and that was the start of something totally new. Hallie and I bonded in a way that I, you know, sort of like the restaurant bond, but it sort of went beyond that. Um, to the, you know, to this day, she and I are. She's the closest friend I've, I think I've ever had, since I was, you know, when you have friends, when you're little, it's so different than as you grow up, but she became, and you know, the friendship we have is something I, I never expected would, would come again as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and between the two of us and, you know, the next however many years, going on, I'm going on eight years there, she's going on 11, we built this program that went from you know, I started there in 2013. Oh gosh, I can't throw around some numbers right now. I don't think I can pull them out of my head, but grew immensely. Yeah, so went from you know a couple of events a year to you know got our solstice party, which is now this behemoth of a, of a fundraising event. To you know seeing 18,000 people a year. We have our team then had there were three of us full time. And now we have our department anywhere from 12 to 20 people, 12 full-time people. Um, yeah, wow. it, was, it was pretty incredible. And it was the, just the most fun I can imagine work being. And it was back to that, mer- it was like merging that restaurant high, that like busy bustling with just this entire new element,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which was, you know, direct-to-consumer sales, e-commerce, wine club. Social media, you know, all of these different channels, this omni-channel view, and it was like I was back. You know, I felt like, okay, you know, this is where I need to be. And then working with Tony Michelle Soder so closely, like Tony Soder, you know, someone I had learned about a long time ago. Um, you know, Tony has been such an incredible teacher, such an incredible mentor, as his as was his wife Michelle before she passed away in 2019. Um, about, you know, a values-driven business. Tony, um, I think we all laugh, like we sort of wish he was more (laughs) profit-driven. But it's just not about that for him. And I have, as much as like, I lament, like, man, wouldn't it be nice just like work for a big company and like get all the perks? Like, I just, like, my heart just goes to these, these businesses that are very uh, human Human-driven, uh, right? They are—they are about the people, and that has been something that I've been able to help create at Sodor, which has given me, you know, so much joy. <laughs> you know, when I started there, um, they offered, you know, benefits, full health care, which is great. Since then, Tony, as far as I know, I don't know anyone else who's doing matching 401k of a business our size. We now have paid maternity leave and paternity leave, you know, paid vacation. Um, really comprehensive benefits for family members. Mm -hmm. You know, we want this to be a place that people can grow and live. And my goal being in the hospitality business is that people can have a career there. I never felt like I was going to reach a point financially that I could stay in that business. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason there's so many young people in it, (laughs) because they can afford to be in it. But when you hit your 30s, when you hit your 40s, like can you still be in the hospitality business and support a family? Mm Can you take three months off from work and have a baby? And those were the things that Tony and Michelle and Hallie and I talked about extensively. Like, we want people to build a life here. We don't, we don't wanna be a way station because they can't afford to stay.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we want them to be able to, like, we want them to afford not to be able to leave.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and in the best way, mm-hmm.
3: right, of course. Mm-hmm.
2: But the hospitality business, it's, it's so backwards in the pay structures. We all know this, right? The person that you are relying on to build your brand is your lowest-paid employee with the highest turnover. It makes no sense. You know, my I talk about this all the time, and you know, it doesn't always pan out in like our budget meetings yet. But you know, I want our I want all of our employees to be on a on base salary. Um, you know, forty-five thousand feels like a great starting point for them. That would be like, you can have a family mm-hmm. with that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that's that's a goal, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are very fortunate. We have va- we have placed value in retention over saving some money on payroll. Our payroll's out of control. <laughs> um, it's kind of hilarious, you know, when you look at you know the P and L of a big company or a small company rather. You know, a small <laughs> company, but when you see all of the numbers put together, you see how much we sell versus like our national sales team, for example, and then what the payrolls are, and you're like, wow. DCC is expensive. You know, it costs so much for us to produce what we're doing mm-hmm. as in the in the program, but mm-hmm. y- we all wouldn't have it any other way, mm-hmm. you know? We're expected to, to be, and we have a set expectations for ourselves and Tony um, that are very high. Mm-hmm. The goals are high, and it's not cheap, um, but we can all feel so proud to be there and know that we're cared for and know that um, it's not just about the bottom line, mm. and that you know it's a revolving door of employees. Our retention is extraordinarily high. Mm. You know, my right hand is our you know our director of experience. She's been there. She was my second hire, I think, almost. She'll be eight years in a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, our wine club, uh, an experience manager, has been there. She's going on you know four years. Our winemaker has been there twelve years, um, and. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Even some of our um, hospitality team members. Jody's been there four and a half years. You know, Evita's been there on and off for five years. Um, And I think that's something that I am super proud of.
1: So tell me about the, you mentioned the, sort of the situation when you were hired, and, and you had obviously a lot, of, a lot of room for growth. So, tell me about mm. taking on a project like that with you and you and Hallie. What did you? What, what, what were the initial? What was the initial goal? What's the initial project? What are the initial things you do to start building a program up like that?
2: Yeah, so we we were doing it in a very like scrappy way. So we were just there. We were, you know Sodar still open seven days a week. We were open seven days a week. Um, we were trying to find sort of all the ways that we could ramp up um, sales, whether that was visitation, we had a demand. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was, I don't know, it came together really organically. You know, every year we would sit down at the table and be like, okay, so what are our goals this year? One year it was we increased visitation by, you know, 50% because we were able to turn some of these, we had two little cabins on the property, that previously the Soders used as kind of their um, little home away from home, we converted those into private tasting rooms. That was able to kind of ramp things up. Mm-hmm. Um, we realized that once we had more spaces like that, we had to bring on more team members, and so then we developed you know, our training program. Um, and one of the things that we identified right away, when I started there, we were hiring chefs to come in and produce food for us for events. And at that point, we did a lot of events, whether they were small or big, you know, whether it was we were hosting a wine reviewer for lunch or whether it was our wine club pickup party mm-hmm. and we needed to produce, you know, several hundred bites of something. And after sort of, you know, cutting checks and realizing like how much we were spending to hire people and the logistics of hiring people again and again and again, that was a big part of what I did there. I was like, you know, I could do this. I think I could do this. I think we could we could prove that not only would we save a ton of money, but it would add value if we just started our own culinary program if we had a chef. So one year, um, for one year only, we tested it out. So I worked with some friends at the time who had just moved to town, who I went to culinary school with actually, and I kind of brought them on as like, on a very like consulting basis, Mm -hmm. but I was the acting chef as well as doing my other job. So again, it was like back to this like scrappy, we're gonna work two jobs and we're just, gonna figure this out. And Hallie and I would be there like late night, like peeling cucumbers, braising pork, you know, just having the best time and, and just making it work. And after that year, so funny, I remember one Sunday, David Skildneck was coming to review our wines and I was cooking lunch for them, Tony and David and James and we had just, um, we were raising quail, and the quail were really difficult to raise. They were very fragile animals, you know. Um, but we, we knew and we decided like, okay, quail eggs, too precious, you know, very difficult to work with. And the quails themselves, it was just, they were a hard animal. And we're like, okay, well, we don't really have anyone to like help us with this. And our farmer at the time, it, still, Nadine Basil, it, she's such an animal lover that the animal husbandry part of her job in terms of um, you know, facilitating slaughter and not her thing. And so the winemaker and I um, ended up killing all these quail <laughs> together, and you know, I like broke them down, we like slaughtered them together, and then went up and like cooked this lunch for David, and there was like a brief moment when I thought I was I burnt the quail. but really just a little piece of butter had dropped down to the bottom of the oven. But I was like, "Oh my God, like this is it everything's everything's over, you know um, and they were like beautiful and you know it worked out and then like it was delicious and after that year of mayhem we were able to um convince is probably the wrong word but we were able to you know prove to tony michelle that we thought this was the best direction we could go in you know the culinary program was my baby um the first chef we hired was from new york and he was kind of more of a he was going to be there to help us like set things up and get it off the ground, but we knew he wasn't going to be like our chef long term. Um, but suddenly now I'm back to doing what I love to do, you know. And and again from a management perspective, it was it was beautiful. Like we brought in the first chef we hired that was like our real like full time chef was a guy named Alex Daly, and he was so wonderful. He um, it, well yeah we were he's actually we have the exact same birthday same exact age, and um, he knew a lot of my friends I went to culinary school with, cooked with a lot of them in Colorado previously, um, and we did so many beautiful things together. It was so much fun. We were able to you know, connect all of the goodness that was coming off the farm,
3: mm-hmm.
2: match it with the wines. You know, Doing wine and food and wine pairing there, was, it's so brilliant because for the first time, and even in great restaurants, chefs really struggle with making the food not just about the food. Even if some of the dishes would stand alone and be better had they had an element added or something taken away, that wasn't what we—that wasn't our goal. The whole experience we created was about complementing the wine, Mm -hmm. and how do we showcase the wine in the best light? And so, you know, you drop away a lot of vinegar and acid and heat, you know, and things that umami, like these flavors that are really intense that chefs love to to play with because they're so shocking on the palate. Um, and what are you left with? you know? And I remember when Alex did his tryout, um, it was Hallie and Tony and Michelle and I, and he was cooking for us and he did, um, he did carrots in the style of uh, like a Bordelaise, So like, you know, steak, rather than like steak with red, you know, a, a braised sauce, like red wine reduction sauce, he did carrots instead. And it was such a beautiful use of vegetable and still like tapped into, you know, what Pinot Noir goes great with. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something we always struggle with is, you know, in the summer we've got peppers and tomatoes and nightshades, and you're like, cool, but we've got Pinot Noir. And those things are not necessarily, right, the best pairing. Oh, fresh basil, perfect. Mm -hmm. No. Um, But, so how does a chef take all of that beautiful food Mm -hmm. that we're growing and make it into something that is going to complement the wine? So that was, that whole part of the initial start of the culinary program was, super cool for me.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And Alex and I would sit down and we'd do component tastings and we'd, you know, take notes and then we'd present dishes to you know, Tony and Michelle at that time were a lot more involved because we were all so excited. You know, it was like the new shiny thing and and we all loved to eat and we all loved sitting around the table together. The whole experience of dining is, you know, why I was drawn to it in the first place. Um, and there wasn't really anything like it in the valley. There were some people that were dabbling in food and at the time, and this was 2015, and but no one else was doing it, you know, an experience like this. Um, and God forbid if we do another wine dinner. I hope those never come back.
3: <laughs>
2: wine, you know, wine dinners are. I'm gonna rant about wine dinners. They're just so boring. I don't know, and it feels like that's. I hope that's something we're gonna leave behind. Like the COVID's not gonna bring back. Um, because there's so many more interesting things we could be doing, and that's what I really hoped our, our provisions experience was. So, you know, it wasn't going to be precious bites. And here is this course, and here is this wine. And here is this bite, and here is this wine. You know, we designed it to be eating like you normally would. Like, it was very natural. It was very convivial. And so the food came out. We had initially designed it to be, like, um a board, mm-hmm. and there would be several things on the board, and anything could go with anything. And sure, there may be some really like zinger pairings that you're like, now this one is like to die for, but it wasn't supposed to be so precious. We really wanted to strip away this idea that you were walking into this, like, okay, like you better understand this pairing, or you better be able to talk about why, you know, crab and corn go with the Chardonnay. like we didn't want that at all. And we really wanted people just to relax and try things and enjoy them and have it not be so, um, like, oh, gosh, I really wish I didn't have that in my mouth right now because I'm trying this wine. And that happens a lot with Mm -hmm. with food and wine pairing where you have some very specific pairing that it does not cross over. Um, And that's just not real life. And we wanted this to be something that we enjoyed doing as well and that you don't just do once a year. Like a wine dinner, you know, it feels so extravagant. we didn't want it to be a special occasion. We wanted it to be like a kind of a farm lunch, but with a little more.
1: I like that. So, so describe for me. You mentioned Tony Soder, obviously a very well-known name in the world of wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the. How, how do you describe Soder now? What what is this, the ethos at Soder, and, and what um, wh- who are the who are your consumers? Who are people who are drawn to Soder? And what what do you bring to them? What what is it? What is it about soda that appeals to them?
2: Yeah, I think soda for me represents this. It is a winery, of course, above all. But, and, you know, something Tony wanted to do was create something that was more than him. And I, this cracks me up because Tony's name is on the winery. right; <laughs> it's on the label, and he um, he really doesn't like. To connect himself to it in that way, and we always laugh. We're like, well, then why did you name <laughs> it Soda Vineyards? But the point of it is, he wanted it to be there beyond him. The whole property, Mineral Springs Ranch, was, um, you know, a dream of Tony and Michelle's after they left California, and they wanted to create something that was self-sustaining. They wanted to create something that could be as good as it was, and also. Great for the environment, mm-hmm. and also good for your health. Michelle was so passionate about food and nutrition, and you know, when you think about wine, and you don't always think about like great nutrition, right? You're like, oh, it's alcohol. You know, is it good for you? And Michelle didn't see it that way at all. You know, for her, food was was nu- nourishment, mm-hmm. and so it's soda. You know, that's something I think that draws people to us, like people that are interested in a company that they can stand behind their values. You know, if you really dug into Soder's practices, you know, you'll find lighter glass. You'll see none of our wines ever have capsules on them that can't be recycled. You know, things from the paper that's on the wine to what filtration system we use in our tasting room to, you know, what kind of cleaning products we buy. Every decision thinks about the environment and the people first not necessarily like, well, what's the cheapest thing? Mm-hmm. What's it gonna be? Um, and I think when you come into Soda you feel that. You feel cared for in a way that's beyond just the traditional model. Mm-hmm. And I think today, in today's age, when we have a lot of choices about how to spend our money and the consumers of, you know, Gen, Gen Z, millennial, are, are very much looking for transparency in a way that Gen X, you know, baby boomer generations just weren't yet. Um, and we can be so proud of like, check it all out, like it's all here, and, and I think that that's one thing that draws customers to us. Mm-hmm. Um, we find that a lot of our customers you know are asking questions like that, what are in these wines? Mm-hmm. How are you farming? And we're really proud of the certifications we have, you know, at Soder we are certified through CCOF Organics, and then through Demeter for Biodynamics. and. There are a lot of folks that you know sing the song of organic farming and biodynamic, but they're not certified. And for us, that was, a, that was the wrong approach. Like, we, we wanted to have that stamp seal of approval because it wasn't just going to be lip service. Mm-hmm. You know? We wanted to talk the talk and walk the walk. Um, and our customers, I think, see that and appreciate it and want to be, be part of that, want to support that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it also goes back to, to people and how we treat our people. You know, our reputation, I think, for um, for our, our people has has preceded us. And I know that's why we have such a loyal following. You don't see different people every summer in the tasting room. It's the same people We always bring on new faces. And of course, people move on and do different things, but you're gonna see the same faces. And mm-hmm. that says something, mm-hmm. you know, when you're shopping at a place or, you know, visiting a restaurant, and you connect with those people mm-hmm. in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Like this community, thrives on that connection, and um, and that's invaluable to us.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So even in the even in the fairly brief time you've been at Soder, um, you've seen a huge amount of growth in Oregon wine around you and in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the about growing with that and about finding your place in a in a more and more crowded marketplace um, in the last few years and and um, what you've had to do to kind of keep soda in the forefront.
2: Yeah, we talk about this all the time. Um, we tend to, you know, after we'll do something like our culinary program kind of some people follow and we very much like to think of ourselves as the leader in hospitality for sure. Um, but once you get into the national market and, right, and how does soda, how is soda perceived outside of just our little bit of our bubble here in the Walnut Valley, things certainly shift. One of the struggles I think we've had is really getting behind telling our own story. And it's one of the reasons that I tend to take, well, I take like one to two sales trips a year just to be on the other side. And to see like, what are people saying? Like, how are we being perceived out in the market? And you know, we're coming up on our 25 year anniversary. Um, which means that you know, we're, not, we're not this like young hip winery that can just sort of like be on Instagram and have this like incredibly vibrant winemaker who's just you know selling everything himself. And that's not our brand anymore. Mm-hmm. You know we are approaching that legacy brand and how do we stay? Um, how do we stay at the forefront? As you mentioned, um, and you know f- we've always built our reputation on word of mouth. Mm-hmm. We've never advertised. You know we sort of let the product speak for itself. And this year not that we're still, you know, not that we're not doing that, but we are getting behind the idea that we can be proud of what we're doing and we can tell our story more. And we've we've been a little shy about that in the past. You know, you don't see even around the valley like you're not going to see Tony on all the panels and doing all the things. He is not someone that feels like he has to go out and validate what he's done and how he's doing it. He is very much like my work speaks for itself and I would rather be as he says I'd rather be chopping wood than talking about it, Um, and I love that about Tony. But what we're Hallie and I are trying to work on this year, right, is just making sure that people really do know the sort of initiatives that we're taking internally, Mm -hmm. um, and why they could still, you know, why they should still be looking to us as as a leader in the industry, even though we're a small family-run winery. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, being in the national market is so different than being on the ground here in Oregon. And I'm super proud of our national sales team and how they've been able to, you know, represent our winery. And we're very much that winery that we're not letting the distributors do the work for us. You know, we are with them. We are telling our own story. We are, you know, boots on the ground in every state almost, um, making sure that we're being represented the way we want to be, you know, represented. And that's a challenge. That also, you know, takes a lot of time and a lot of money and. One of the things that I think you mentioned COVID earlier, that COVID has taught us is that we need to embrace technology in the national sales world in a way that we have not done yet. It's a little old-fashioned to think about going back to riding in cars with sales reps and visiting six accounts a day. You know That just doesn't seem like an efficient use of time anymore, especially with the younger generation not necessarily valuing that experience in the same way.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't think you know. I don't think wine dinners are dead. Um, I don't think we're you know we're obviously. I think we're all hungry. No pun intended. To be back at the table in a restaurant, you know, it's the thing I miss the, the absolutely the most. Um, those things will come back. You know, nothing will ever replace that community around eating mm-hmm. and drinking and sharing wine. Like, and I am so excited for that to come back. However, we absolutely need to embrace the idea that. What COVID did for us was just—it just sped up something that was already happening, and we cannot go back in time, Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't. Um, But how do we continue to grow our business and connect using technology that we already have in direct to consumer, Mm -hmm. email marketing, social media, you know, our CRM? National Sales is still like rolodexing it, Um, and it's really interesting. It's worked for the three-tier system for a long time, like just the way they did it. But with rapid consolidation in the national market, we know that we're going to have to take more control over how our brand is sold, how it's perceived, where it is in the market, because those companies have a book of wineries this thick, and we're just one number in the S's, you know, <laughs> soda under whoever, under whoever, under whoever, and our story can't just stand on the fact that we're a small family-run Oregon winery. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. There has to be more to it than that, and I think our people are going to be a huge Part of how we can continue to, to, to be at the forefront, you know, mm-hmm. we don't have staff members invested in staying relevant and being active in the community. Hallie sits on I don't know how many boards, you know, and it's because she is just hungry to be part of the change here, and she is representing Soder to make sure that we are um, we are helping, you know, steer that story um, about the company, but also Oregon wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know she's she's of that next generation, that younger generation, and she had a fight to get on those boards. She was too young. She wasn't the owner or a winemaker. You know she fought so many hurdles like that, and still does. And Hallie's like, "Yeah, I'm the GM of our company. It, does that not <laughs> ca- count for anything? You know, it's it's really interesting. Um, but I think as much as the the pioneers of Oregon, you know." Have done incredible work, and some of those families are multi-generational. Ponzi's, mm. Socal Blossers, and still are doing great work. Mm-hmm. The the next gen is is coming up. You know, our winery right now is run by mainly women and young people. Mm. You know, Tony, and Tony is always like, I'm just the old guy in the room. Like you guys tell me, you know, what 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 we should be doing. You know, Nadine Basil, our our ranch and vineyard manager, um, Holly, who is our you know director of operations who started in the tasting room as a part-time tasting room associate and worked her way up to running our company. You know, myself, um, Chris Wadwood is our winemaker. He's God, I think Chris is younger than I am. And, you know, he's been with the company for 12 years, worked his way, you know, right up. Um, That's a lot of young people Mm -hmm. sitting at the table Mm -hmm. and helping to shape the direction of the company. You know, Mm -hmm. something I never thought we'd be talking about this year is, is, you know, uh, DEI topics. Which has been incredible to walk through that with Tony, who is, you know, very much like what, like, wow, wow, we're opening his eyes to things that he wasn't clued in on before. Mm-hmm. Um, he's of a different generation, and you know, where Tony, as it relates to some of these newer business initiatives, you know, uh, is a philosophy major, and so his questions are often, why, you know, <laughs> instead of like, um, which makes the conversations there. They're so open and intriguing, and you know, we are talking about like, how to be more diverse, how to be more equitable, mm-hmm. how to be more inclusive. How do we fit in and help to, to raise our industry from a place that I think we all feel has been very lacking in, in all of those fields.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Pause. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: We've talked about COVID a couple of times, and mm-hmm. obviously I appreciate you talking about sort of COVID specifically to, to soda. I'm curious, uh, in your from your impressions, what you've seen the effects COVID has had on the industry in general, uh, both wine and obviously food. Uh, and as you look ahead to coming out of COVID, mm-hmm. hopefully shortly, what you see being left behind, like you mentioned, and what you see kind of the industries looking like as, as they come out.
2: Yeah. I think, w- let's start with restaurants. You know, restaurants are, you know my happy place, and I'm restaurants. What happened with restaurants was so devastating, and not just because they the the business model does not fit in any way, shape, or form with COVID. Right? Everything we know about COVID, you know, being inside, being close to people, breathing, eating, talking, in, in the same airspace, like they were just they were hitting it, you know, taking it on the chin in every possible way but then what our government did to not help subsidize them more. And what I know so intimately about the margins of restaurants, you know, these are not rich people. These people are not running a small restaurant because they want to be a millionaire. And, you know, there's so much love and creativity in those spaces. Um, I'm so hopeful that many of them can reopen. For wineries, it's been a little different. Our industry has struggled with how do we sell to the consumer when they don't come to the tasting room? Mm-hmm. And this has been a problem for a long time. We just have never had to really face it. You know, we face it in the winter a little bit, where we're like, okay, we're so tourism driven. In the winter here, it's not necessarily a place you wanna come on your, you know, on your vacation. It's not snowy, it's not um, sunny. Um, I actually love it in the winter here, personally. but. Um, so we kind of always have this little bit of like, wow, like what do we do now? no one's coming to the tasting room. Um, but then, you know, we get busy again in the spring and we forget all about it. But COVID really forced us to look at our business model as a way of like, we have to be able to sell wine to people. They want it. Mm-hmm. They might be in Texas. They can't come here. So how are we connecting those dots? Mm-hmm. I think we are not going to go back to sole reliance on the tasting room for wine club and for direct-to-consumer. We're just not going to go back there. Um, I don't think virtual tastings necessarily is the future, and that's the way we're going. But there will be, um, I think, a reckoning. And part of it had nothing to do with wineries, right? Like, how many people do you know, maybe yourselves included, you know, what are you buying online now that you never were? What subscription services do you use that you never did? You know, I work in a business that relies on subscription services, but I also buy razors and, like, you know, skincare on a subscription service, mm-hmm. like, you know, I never thought I would do that before. Mm-hmm. So, if we can make online shopping convenient and easy, and if you can, you know, obviously, alcohol, so there's a lot of strings attached to that, but I think that's where we're never gonna go back. I think if wineries can get on board with, you know, making sure their website functionality is optimum and making sure they have key players in place that are on the other end of those phones when customers Mm -hmm. reach out or when we're doing outreach. Mm -hmm. I think that's gonna be a huge part of what we do after COVID, after things come back to normal. At Soder in particular, we've been wanting to do this for years and COVID gave us an opportunity that we never thought. So our model has always been reservation only, which a lot of wineries were not and now they are. And they're also like, wow, that was actually kind (laughs) of great but one of our um, the way we hosted groups is that we had let's say a table of they could see eight people and we would put up two couples with another couple and you know maybe a four top with another four top Mm -hmm. and we would host a private experience with you for years we had the inclination that and this was from data that we acquired in the slower season that smaller group sizes actually sell more wine we're getting higher club sign-ups with these private tastings. Um, but when you look at the numbers and how many people we'd be turning away if we went to that model of single appointments at a single table, we just never could justify mm. pulling the Band-Aid off. And 2019 was probably one of our busiest years ever. And the event season um, is a killer. There are some years when we sort of like limp over the finish line. Um, and our wine club big parties are so much fun, but they went from, you know, we would see 100 to 200 people a day over the course of a weekend, which seemed pretty manageable, to six to 800 people a day over the weekend, and then, you know, then we went from a two-day event to a three-day event, and then, you know, suddenly, you know, several weeks out of the year, sometimes twice a month, we are... Pushing it to the max, mm-hmm. and it's not like we have a separate event team. Mm-hmm. It's all of us doing it,
3: mm-hmm.
2: all the while, you know, being maintenance teams and you know moving furniture and, and you know, getting ready to host these massive events. We are not going to go back to that post COVID. We have seen now what we've been able to do with private tastings. Um, the energy is back in the tasting room. You know, we're before, even though again we're appointment only. It's not like you came up and there were like party buses in our parking lot on the weekends, but the energy was different. And now it's like going up to the tasting room, and I don't work in the tasting room anymore, but it's almost like the special feeling that I always had there has returned mm-hmm. in a really incredible way where there's just a calmness again. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a focus. Mm-hmm. And I've been chatting with our um, director of experience, Jamie Cutler, about this a lot, and we both are like, there are a lot of things that, we're not good about 2020. But there was a, it's like our batteries were able to be recharged in a way that um, we don't want to deplete them again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think our event program is something that we are seriously looking at of, um, you know, our our event program really became focused on club retention. And we do it to engage with our club members, but we've also had a lot of club members be like, wow, these are just too big now, right? (laughs) It's just a little too crazy. Um, and so we're really just trying to figure out how we find that balance of mm-hmm. still being able to throw, it's great to go to a party, You doesn't want to go to a party at Sodor. I mean, it's so much fun up there, it's gorgeous, but how do we do it in a way that doesn't deplete the entire staff mm-hmm. while you're you know, throwing this party? And, and also you know, turn away some of our members who really want to come up there for that serenity. So we're exploring a lot of different options right now, including um, a new small building that would be dedicated to our culinary team. Mm -hmm. We've always wanted to have a private, more private experience for that part of our business. Um, We've always wanted to have a walking trail that connects our farm up to the tasting room, create more experience-based tastings, Mm -hmm. perhaps. They involve more education from our farmer and from our winemaker, um, and that's really where we're thinking into the future, you know, sort of like a mini, mini Blue Hill at Stone Barns, um, you know, where you have education and classes, but you have fine dining and, you know, enjoyment, you know, there's some hedonism too, sprinkled in, which is always fun, um, and, and that, that I think is, is what we're, our big takeaway for 2020 was. is. We all feel like we recovered something in twenty twenty mm-hmm. that we perhaps had lost.
3: We've
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. heard that a lot this year, and I think it's interesting. A lot of, a lot of different ways that has happened certainly happened within the industry uh, and, and outside as well. It's very interesting. I think education and hedonism building has a nice ring to it. I think you could just call it that when <laughs> yeah. you when you build it. <laughs> what about your own future? What do you see for yourself as you look ahead?
2: That's always a great question. I think you. You made me, uh, you may remember when I said this earlier where looking ahead for me has never been in my toolbox. Like I love to just, you know, I'm not gonna say live in the moment cause that's like super cliche, but I like will go back to that analogy of like washing windows. Like there is something so peaceful to me about engaging fully in what I'm doing right now that I don't often like gaze into the future. Now, recently, I actually have been doing a little bit of that. I'm probably going to start a family here in the near future, which is a really big deal for me. And that certainly forces one to perhaps start thinking about things in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it relates to my professional career, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I haven't quite figured it out. I know, you know, personally, what I do every year um, that I've been at soda at least, is, you know, take that gut check. I have to check a few boxes and you know, there's some things that I will not um stand in my in myself and those things are indifference and complacency. You know, those two things if I ever lean too far to one of those directions, I know it's time to move on mm-hmm. with something.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But I passed the test again, <laughs> you know. Sodor, it's so dynamic being there. And right now like what I do in building out strategy, sales strategy and um Really taking the big picture view, you, you know, is what I do now in my in my job, and that is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so interesting to think about how what what we're going to be doing as a business in five years, and what infrastructure needs to be in place now to achieve those goals. So there is a lot more work to do at Sodor. Um, whatever happens for me in the future, food will always be involved in some way. It's just too good. Um, I always tell my partner now when I retire that I want to be a line cook again. Breakfast, eggs to order, Mm -hmm. no poached. (laughs) (laughs) That's my only (laughs) rule. Yeah, Um, because there is something so joyful to me about being in the kitchen again, and I don't think I'm, uh, I'm not done with the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it will be a very long way away when it becomes, when I can do it without fear of losing the, you know, the house. Um, but I'll do it again mm-hmm. in some capacity.
1: Mm-hmm. So tell me about the, the we kind of zooming out on the industry a little bit here. What are the what are the biggest changes you've seen in Oregon wine uh, as a part as you've been a part of the industry? And and again, looking forward, what do you see coming for the industry next, uh, the next down the, down the road, the next five, ten years?
2: I think one of the most inspiring things about the organ wine industry now is all of the young people that are engaging and contributing in such meaningful ways. I if I had an, you know, an ounce of sort of like the interest and the intrigue along with the I would say probably more um, like emotional intelligence that they're bringing to the table right now as it relates to all different things, right? DE and i stuff, you know, traveling, having um, a college that has a wine studies program, you know, that's bringing in talent that I think we never had before. And in the last, you know, I guess I moved here permanent, you know, full-time in 2012, but even in that time, just seeing how many more faces are at the table that are young, that are women, people of color, that we didn't have before. I'm really proud of how the Oregon wine industry has responded and has made active steps toward changing the way the world view, views wine, the way wine has become, we'll say, you know, worldwide, like the, the white man's beverage. You know, Oregon in particular, I think, has, has really tried to take that head on. Um, The WVWA has done a lot of great work, Oregon Wine Board, Mm -hmm. organizations like Assemblage that I've been working with closely. And I'm really proud to be part of that movement, but also that, that they're just doing it, you know, and they're trying, and they're not getting it right all the time, none of us are. But to be in a region that is predominantly white, to be in... A, an industry that is predominantly white, and to see this change happening from the top down, is very inspiring.
1: You mentioned, mentioned Assemblage. Um, tell me about the, that. Uh, the, that organization, other organizations you're, you're associated with, and, and why why do you feel the need to be part of them, and, and sort of what the what your goals are with them.
3: Yeah.
2: So, um, two organizations that I've been working with, um, really different organizations, but, um, but have a lot of crossover. So Austin Lodge was founded by Rachel Adams, and you know, out of um, a desire to see and encourage more conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion in the wine business, in, it started off as a, probably more of a focus on women in particular. Um, and then right away, as the work started to unfold, and it was centered around a symposium, a physical symposium that we had in January of 2020. A lot of cool stuff happened in January <laughs> and February, and then things really took a turn. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were able to get the first symposium off the ground, and I was a board a board member then, um, so not part of the say, project management group, the group that really did all the meat, you know, and potato work to get that event off the ground, um, and it it's one of those really cool things where you have an idea about what something's going to be in your head and then as it starts unfolding it really takes on um, something of its own.
3: Mm-hmm. It
2: became really apparent after this symposium that women were certainly um, women and being, you know, women focused and, and women driven were, it's only a piece of the puzzle and that there was a lot more work to do to bring in diverse voices. Mm-hmm. Um, that realization, coupled with COVID, really caused the um, organization to do um, some big soul searching and some pivoting. And we elected not to do a digital virtual symposium, um, but yet our founder, Rachel, has been doing a lot of work and I can't quite say what's next for us because it's still in the works, but I'm really excited about the direction it's taking in more of a um, education, mentoring um, and, um, you know, teaching uh, arm mm-hmm. as it relates to DEI topics, so that's kind of where we're headed with the organization, mm-hmm. um, and you know, it's just so important because, to me at least, that it is the future. It's the future of where our country should be, you know, it's undoing, you know, everything that has been going wrong that so many of us, especially of a certain age, are like, we sort of knew all this, but no one was talking about it. No one was giving us tools that we could use to try and, you know, be anti-racist, to mm-hmm. understand what systemic racism is and how it's involved in our everyday, you know, thinking and living, and um, mm-hmm. and just to to know that I could be part of something that does that for our industry mm-hmm. as well as my own personal life is so. I mean, it's so cool. Mm-hmm. Frankly, mm-hmm. like it's the type of work that I never thought I would be involved with at all, mm-hmm. um, and that is the most fulfilling of all.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And the Nightwood Society um, is an event space in Portland, Oregon, and the Nightwood Society was again like based around innovation and creativity um, as it relates to to females and bringing together. Women of all different persuasions to contribute to creating incredible experiences and events around food and wine. Whether it was farmers, artists, you know, creating a common space for photographers, for chefs, mm-hmm. um, we have artisans that we work with that m- mm-hmm. you know weave and speak and or politicians. Um, and just sort of tapping into that community in Portland, which I have not really spent much time there, um, never lived in Portland, but um, has been really, really fun. And and just being intentionally with women, you know, during that whole time, um, I would say, you know, as a kid, I probably spent more time with men, um, just by virtue of my brothers, my cousins, my dad. Um, than I did with, um, with other women, like intentionally, but mm-hmm. I've had so many incredible you know, mentors in, in life that were women, and to seek out and be part of these women-led organizations um, was something, again, I didn't know I was missing mm-hmm. until I had it. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh. You know, These are just beautiful ways to connect, spend time, and, and spend energy. I was talking to someone, a friend of mine last night about Time is probably the most valuable thing that I can see in my life, you know, and how I choose to spend that time and who I choose to spend it with. Like, that's the currency to me right now is, is physical time. Mm-hmm. Um, and those organizations to me and that, those topics are worth my time.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: All right. One last question for you. You took obviously a fairly interesting path into the wine industry. Uh, if someone were to come to you and ask for your advice, words of wisdom on getting into the industry, what would you tell them?
3: Mm.
1: We can specify in this case, sort of this, your sales and marketing side of the industry. What, your, your current work?
2: I would say work in a tasting room. I, you know, it's one of those things that I am. I'm going to be old fashioned in that way, where that is where I see the need for so much change. And as a young person, understanding how they function right now means that they will be able to change in the future. And if they don't realize how hard you're going to work for that amount of pay, they can't then get a management position and an in impact change. Mm-hmm. You know, um, And there is like, if you're not, if you don't understand that perspective of how much is riding on those jobs, for your business. Mm -hmm. I remember being in California, I won't name the winery, gorgeous, gorgeous winery. Beautiful wines. I mean, they have spent in all the right places. Every lamp, you know, (laughs) the views. Just, it's perfect. And we went in for a private tasting and we had um, a host, Paul I will never forget, and he ruined the entire experience. And it was, just awful. Um, and I will forever associate that winery with that experience. And I know better, mm-hmm. you know, but I still will. Mm-hmm. For, for upper management, for leadership to understand the impact that those people have on your business, is in, like, you have to start there. Mm-hmm. And we need more people to understand that to make, to make changes, to make real changes.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, all the questions that I have for you, anything I didn't ask today that I should have asked, anything we didn't cover that we should have covered?
2: I don't think so. Very thorough. (laughs) (laughs) I can feel my voice starting to like, it's like, I think
0: that's, that was good.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time, for your sharing your stories with us and, and your perspectives, and we will let you off the
0: hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archives students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.